My name's Adam. Just waiting for the video. My name's Adam. If uh, we haven't met, I'm part of the team here at Oasis Church, and it's really great uh, to be with you today. If you haven't been around for the last few weeks, we've been in a, a series of sermons that we've called Dear Church, the seven letters of Revelation 2 to 3. We've been looking at seven letters which Jesus sent to seven ancient churches, which are relevant for all churches in all days, including ours. And today we come to the seventh and the final letter, the letter to the church in Laodicea. Now, I want to set it up by telling you about the movie Rocky. Now, you might say, which one? There are six of them, after all, not including all of the spin-offs. Well, I'm not talking about Rocky 1, I'm not talking about Rocky 2, I'm talking about Rocky 3. Now, if you haven't seen any of the, the films in the franchise, it tells the story of an aspiring boxer named Rocky Balboa. But by the time we get to the third movie, Rocky is well and truly at the top. He has been world champion for a number of years. He's gone from living in poverty to living in a mansion. He's leading a comfortable life, and he plans to retire. But on the day that he announces his retirement, he is challenged by an up-and-coming fighter, this behemoth named Clubber Lang. Now, Rocky can't help himself, and so he accepts the fight, and he begins to train and to prepare for it. But his heart isn't really in it. His training is more of a circus than, than real training. He signs more autographs than he hits punching bags. Meanwhile, Clubber Lang is working day and night preparing for this fight. And so you get to fight night, and you're wondering, can Rocky pull this one out of the fire? Can he defeat one last opponent? even though he's not at his peak? And the answer is no. Rocky is destroyed in less than three rounds. And he's humiliated, he's depressed, until a visit from a friend and his former opponent, Apollo Creed. And Apollo says uh, something along the lines to Rocky of, you used to have the eye of the tiger. You used to be hungry to win. You used to have the want to you used to be willing to pay the price. You used to. He delivers some tough love to Rocky and he convinces Rocky to give it one more go, but to do it properly this time. And so Rocky and Apollo Creed spend months training and they fight, uh, Rocky fights Clubber Lang one more time. And as I'm sure you can guess, he wins and he reclaims his world championship. And he's able to say, yo, Adrian, <laughs> one more time. If you've never seen the movies, <laughs> Now, what went wrong for Rocky originally? What caused him to be defeated the first time? The answer is complacency. Rocky's success had made him self-indulgent. His comfort had made him complacent and half-hearted. And the reason I bring it up is because this was the same problem at the church in Laodicea. The church at Laodicea had become complacent. They'd become half-hearted. They'd lost their passion, their focus, their drive. They had become lukewarm. This is what Jesus says to them in verse 16. He says, you are lukewarm. 
neither hot nor cold. This church in Laodicea had become complacent and they were in danger of being spat out. Now, what was the situation in the city of Laodicea? Why had this church become comfortable and complacent? What had led them into this kind of lukewarm, dull, lifeless faith? Well, Laodicea, the ancient city of Laodicea, was an incredibly wealthy city. Uh, The city of Laodicea was famous for three things. They were famous for their banking. They were famous for their clothing manufacturing, fancy clothes. And they were famous for their, their medical schools. Particularly, they had this ointment that they produced, which was used uh, to cure and to heal eyes with diseases. Big banks, fancy clothes, and fancy eye doctors. This is what the city of Laodicea was known for. They were a prosperous city. They were also a very proud city. Uh, the city was leveled by an earthquake in AD 61, and they refused help from the Roman Empire. They said, no, we'll rebuild the city ourselves, thank you very much, which they went on to do. They were a prosperous and a proud city. And it seems that this prosperity and this pride had infected the church. That the attitude of the culture had become the attitude of the church. Here's the way that John Stott puts it, uh, the the British uh, minister and, and and scholar, he puts it this way in his commentary. He says, the pride of Laodicea was infectious. Christians caught the plague. The spirit of complacency crept into the church and tainted it. Church members became smug and self-satisfied, and Jesus Christ needed to be blunt in exposing them. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He comes and he gives a blunt message to this sleepy, complacent church. He kind of comes to them like Apollo Creed came to Rocky and he says, you used to want to fight. You used to want to be engaged. You used to care, but you don't anymore. And this is why Jesus delivers such a blunt message. I mean, he has no compliment for this church. Most of the other churches, he's told them something that he's he's, encouraged by, but there's no compliment for the church in Laodicea. He wants them to wake up. He wants them to get serious before it's too late. Now, it's pretty obvious that the message for the church in Laodicea is a message for the church in our day and in our context as well. I mean, we live in one of the most affluent countries in the world. Even if you're earning only minimum wage in Australia, that puts you in the top 5% of richest people in the world. Now, I know it doesn't necessarily feel that way, especially at the moment with, with cost of living pressures. But the fact is, there are billions of people across the globe, there are billions of people throughout history that would be staggered at our standard of living, that would be amazed at the comforts that we enjoy. By just about any standard, most Aussies are rich. And so we need to hear what Jesus has to say to this wealthy, comfortable church in Laodicea. We need to to listen to see if it might not just be a message for us as well. And so we're going to explore Jesus' message to the church in Laodicea under three headings. We're going to see the danger that we face. We're going to see the advice that Christ gives. And then we're going to see finally the future that can be ours. 
So let's begin, number one, with the danger that we face. Now, the Bible has a a lot to say about wealth. Doesn't say that it's a bad thing necessarily, but it does say that it's a dangerous thing. When Jesus talks about wealth on one occasion, he said, watch out, take care. You see, money is a little bit like fire. It's a good thing, it's a useful thing, but if we use it incorrectly, it can become a dangerous thing. Now, how is money and and wealth dangerous specifically? Well, Jesus gives us two dangers here in verses 15 to 17. The first is in verses 15 and 16, and what Jesus shows us is that material wealth can chill our spiritual passion. Material wealth can chill our spiritual fervor. Look at what Jesus says there to this church. He says, I know your deeds, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I've already mentioned that Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was known for its big banks, its stylish clothes, its fancy doctors. But it was also known for something else, bad water. See, Laodicea was located in between two other cities. There was Herapolis on one side, and they had these beautiful hot springs. Gave them beautiful hot water that was rich in minerals. On the other side was Colossae, and they had access to a a nearby mountain stream. Beautiful, cold, clear drinking water. And in the middle was lukewarm Laodicea, and they had neither of these things. They didn't have hot springs, and they didn't have mountain streams. And so what they had to do was get their water channeled in from these other cities. But by the time it arrived in Laodicea, it was lukewarm, it was tepid, and it was gross. It was useless. And this is kind of Jesus' point to this church. He is saying to them, you have become like your water. You're not hot enough to bathe in, and you're not cold enough to drink. You're lukewarm. You're useless. This is kind of what I think Jesus' point is when he says, I wish you were one or the other. I don't think he's saying, I wish you were hot, totally for me, or I wish you were totally against me, cold. I think he's saying, I wish you were useful. Hot water is useful, cold water is useful, but lukewarm water is useless. So Jesus is saying, I wish I could do something with you. I wish you were engaged. You know, when you order your coffee, you don't order a lukewarm flat white. Or if you prefer an iced latte, you don't say, you know, lukewarm iced latte, please. Disgusting. See, this church, they were materially wealthy. They're physically comfortable, but they are spiritually complacent. And this is the danger of material wealth. Here's the way that uh, C.S. Lewis put it in his uh, book, The Screwtape Letters. He said, listen carefully, he said, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it. He's finding his place in the world with with more, more money and more stuff. Well, really, it's finding its place in him. See, this is the subtle danger of wealth. We think that we're controlling it, but if we're not careful, it begins to control us. And it's very subtle, you know, with a a pay rise or with each new purchase or with each new possession or with each bigger property, we find ourselves becoming more at home in the world. And we find the desires of the world becoming more at home in us. And we find it harder to do what what Jesus asks of us. 
and we find our spiritual passion chilled. There's actually a, a name for this phenomenon. It's called lifestyle creep. You know, it's this idea that as we get more money, we naturally get more stuff. We get bigger and better and newer and nicer. But, but the more stuff we have, the more we spend on it. And the more we spend on it, the more we think about it. And the more we think about it, the more it consumes us. And the more it consumes us, the more it controls us. And the more it controls us, the more it chills us spiritually. Jesus himself made this point in Mark chapter 4. Remember, he told a parable about a farmer who was sowing seeds into different kinds of soil. The seed is the word of God. The soil is the human heart. Do you remember what he said about one particular kind of soil? He said, others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, they choke our spiritual growth, which is another way of saying they chill our spiritual passion. This is the, the danger that we face living in the culture and in the day that we do. I feel it. I'm sure you feel it. Material wealth can chill our spiritual passion. It's the first danger. The second danger Jesus gives us is in verse 17. And what he shows us there is that material wealth can dull our spiritual sight. It can make us see things not as they really are. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 17, he says to this church, You say... I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize, Jesus says, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And so ironically, this church in Laodicea, the city that's famous for its eye doctors, they have a sight problem. They look in the mirror. They think they're rich. They think they have everything they need. And Jesus says, you cannot see yourself clearly. He says, you don't realize, despite your big banks, you're poor. Despite your fancy clothes, you're naked. And despite your fancy eye doctors, you're blind. You're poor, blind, and naked. You see, their material prosperity, it has blinded them to their spiritual poverty. Take a look at the, the two photos on the screen. One, the first one, is of the Queen Street Mall in the Brisbane CBD the second is of a street uh, in the city of Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Now, if I was to ask you, which of these two groups live in poverty? Yeah, it would seem obvious that the answer is the second photo. It's those living in Haiti, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. Now, at one level, this is true. I'm not diminishing the reality of poverty in Haiti. I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't care about it or that we shouldn't do something about it. We should. But I want us to recognize that those in the first photo, those in the affluent city of Brisbane, are also living in poverty. We can't see it. We don't recognize it. But it's there. And it's deadly. It's, it's spiritual poverty. And it's arguably more sinister because it's more subtle. You see, material prosperity blinds us to our spiritual poverty. Material wealth, it can make us feel secure in this world, more secure than we really are. 
material wealth can make us feel more in control in this world than we really are. And this was the problem in Laodicea. They were leading comfortable lives. They had everything they need. But Jesus says, no, you're poor, blind, and naked. And it's a dangerous place to be, to be comfortable but complacent about Jesus. To be affluent but apathetic about the things of God. To be rich but not responsive to the grace of God. And so it's really worth asking ourselves, well, what about me? What about us? Have we become complacent? Has our spiritual passion been chilled? Has our spiritual sight been dulled? Now, at some level, all of us are going to resonate with this. Because I think all of us would recognize that we're not as passionate about Jesus as we perhaps could be or or should be. I certainly have reflected on that this week in my own life. Perhaps others of us, if we're honest, we would admit, no, we've checked out in our faith. We're here in body, but, but not really in spirit. And if that's us, I think we need to hear Jesus' warning. You know, Jesus says there, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It's a strong warning, isn't it? But it's strong for a reason, I think. You see, Jesus says, look what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Have you ever had hard words with your children, if you've got children? It's not because you don't love them, it's because you love them. And Jesus is giving this strong warning to these Laodiceans because he loves them so deeply. And if you're feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit, it's not because God doesn't love you, it's because he does love you. And he wants you to wake up. Jesus says there, be earnest and repent. The word repent means to turn around. You might be heading this way, but Jesus wants you to turn around and start heading towards him. And what better day to do that than today? Now, what does that look like for us to start heading in the other direction? What is that going to look like in our lives? Well, this is what Jesus turns to next. See, he shows us the danger that we're facing. And then the second point that we see here, it's the advice that Christ gives. Look what he goes on to say in verse 18. He says, I counsel you, I advise you, don't you love that Jesus, you know, the one who holds all things and, and you know, God in the flesh, he's saying, I, I, this is my advice to you. And what is it? To buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. What's Jesus' counsel here? It's pretty simple. Come to me. Come to me. I have what you need. You don't need more money. You don't need better clothes. You don't need fancy eye doctors. You need me. You need what I can give to you. Now, now Jesus here is not talking about literal gold and literal clothes and literal eye ointment. He's talking about deeper spiritual realities. He's talking about these things that we receive by faith. I mean, the gold that's refined in the fire, that's true riches. It's relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The, The white clothes are talking about forgiveness 
It's that we're covered in Christ's righteousness. Our sins are paid for. Our shame is covered. The self for our eyes is talking about spiritual sight, the ability to see ourselves clearly, the ability to see God clearly. This is what Jesus is offering, forgiveness from God, relationship with God, a true vision of God. It's what he's holding out to us. Now, maybe you're wondering, why does Jesus use the word buy? Why does he recommend that we come to buy these things from him? Can salvation be bought? Is that what he's saying? Of course, the answer is no. You know what the Bible, the Bible says in Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift to be received, not a good to be purchased. So why does Jesus use the word buy? Well, he's using language that's appropriate for these Laodiceans. If we were to put it starkly, they've been on a spending spree. They've been buying everything from everyone else, and Jesus is saying, stop looking, for what you, stop looking at everyone else for what you can only find from me. Come to me. Buy from me. Receive from me. I think Jesus probably had in mind Isaiah chapter 55. Beautiful passage of scripture. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. See, you don't need to pay for your salvation because Jesus has paid it all. And this is why the wine and the milk is without cost. This is why you can buy without money. You come to God with the empty hands of faith and he fills them with everything you need. That's the good news of Christianity. That's the scandal of the gospel. It's not for the strong and the put together. It's for the poor in spirit. It's for the empty handed. It's for those who recognize they have nothing. And when you get to that point, You can come and buy from Christ all that you need and without cost. And so Jesus' point to these Laodiceans and to you and I is is very clear. His, His advice is very obvious. Come to me. Or we might say, return to me. I mean, these Laodiceans, they had responded to the gospel. They knew Jesus. And Jesus is saying, remember what you've received. Don't get swept up in your wealth. You're already rich. Don't get swept up in your stylish clothes. You have my robes of righteousness. And don't get caught up in these fancy eye ointments. I have given you spiritual sight to see what truly matters. Remember what you've received. This is the answer to a complacent faith. This is what Christ wants us to do to come to him. Now, the more important question is, what is Jesus doing in all of this? Because I think we imagine when we find our at this point in life, a, a complacent, lukewarm faith where we know that we've just kind of been coasting and not coasting in a good direction. I think we imagine that Jesus is a long way over that way, wants probably not much to do with us. Look at where he is. Look at verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door. I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. 
Jesus is not a long way off in the distance. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. And he's inviting these wayward Christians back into fellowship with him. He hasn't turned his back. He hasn't walked away. He's right there. Leon Morrison, in his commentary, he says, this is a remarkably tender appeal to a church far gone from its rightful state. This is the offer that Jesus is making to the church in Laodicea, and this is the offer that Jesus is making to us. He he says, if anyone opens the door, and, and anyone in the Bible means anyone, What about you? Have you opened the door? Do you recognize that maybe in your faith you have closed the door? You've checked out. Today's the day to to open the door again. Jesus is offering relationship with you today. And today is the day to make a decision Not tomorrow, not next week, today. The fact is, there is a time coming when when Jesus Christ will come and he'll knock the door down. He'll come, but it won't be in mercy, it will be in judgment. He will bring an end to all of sin and evil that has ravaged God's world. And every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And on that day, it will be too late to decide. It will be too late to receive God's offer of mercy in Christ. Today is the day to open the door, to repent and to return to Christ. He stands at the door and he knocks. Now, if your response is to open the door, then Jesus makes an amazing promise for the future. Brings us to our third and final point. We've seen the danger that we face. We've seen the advice that Christ gives, and now we see the future that can be ours. Look what Jesus says there to these believers in verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, did you catch what Jesus just said? Or are you half asleep? He said that to the one who is holding on to him, to the one who is trusting in him, he will give the right to sit on his throne. Now imagine you go to Buckingham Palace. You've been invited there for lunch with the king and you walk into the ballroom. There's a big table there with lots of seats around the table. But at the head of the table is a throne. It's the king's chair. Now if you walk into that ballroom, where are you going to sit? You're going to walk up to that throne and sit in it? Oh, yeah, this is nice, comfy, I like this. You have no right to sit in that chair. But Jesus Christ just said, if we're trusting in him, he will give us the right to sit on the throne of the universe. Now, I've got to be honest, I don't actually know what that means. But what I do know, it's better than anything else this world has to offer. That's a position that is above any other position in this world. That's a position that is worth more than any other wealth in this world. 
And so how do we receive that? How do we get in on that? Well, Jesus says there in verse 21, it's to the one who is victorious. Now, how do you be victorious? What does it mean to be victorious? Well, to put it as simply as I can, to be victorious means to hold on to the victorious one. Because Jesus goes on in the second half of the verse and he says, I also was victorious. Now, where was Jesus' victory? It was at the place that looked like total defeat. It was at the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus paid for your sin. He disarmed the devil. He defeated death. He displayed God's love. He was enthroned as God's king. And he proved it all by rising again three days later. And so now you and I can be victorious by holding on to the victorious one. We get caught up in his victory. And so hold on to him through all that life throws at you, through the trials, through the temptations, through the prosperity, through the peace, through the blessings, through the pain, through the confusion, hold on to Jesus Christ, the victorious one. Let me end this series where we started with a plea to you to hold on to Jesus and to not let him go. To live your life a little bit like a barnacle on a blue whale. You know by now The blue whale is one of the most majestic creatures in the universe. Travels 7,000 kilometers every year, dives 500 meters underwater. It's just an amazing creature. But do you know what what else does that? The humble barnacle. Travels 7,000 kilometers every year, dives 500 meters underwater. How? Simply by holding on to the blue whale. Hold on to Christ. Don't give him up. Don't let him go. And he will bring you safely home. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these challenging but loving words and Lord I know that I need to hear them and I think many of my brothers and sisters need to hear them as well Lord the truth is some of us here this morning have never put our trust in Christ we've never responded to that offer of grace and mercy and Lord your word says if we declare with our mouth Jesus is Lord believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So that journey of following Jesus is a lifelong journey, but it begins with a step. As Lord, there are some of us that need to take that step. It's a place our faith and our trust in Jesus. To say to, to God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm thankful for Jesus. I put my faith in him and in him alone for my salvation. Lord, others of us, if we're being honest, we have drifted from Christ. We've become cold towards Christ. We've pushed him to the margin of our lives. 
We've even locked him out of our lives. But he hasn't turned his back on us. He hasn't walked away from us. He stands at the door and he's knocking. He wants to come in and eat with us. Not because he needs to, but because we need him to. So Lord, help us today to open the door, to repent and to return to him. The one in whom we find everything we could ever need. And help all of us, Lord, to hold on, to never let go, to cling to Jesus to the very end. On that day when our faith will be made sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.